Um, as we open up God's Word tonight, I want to show you how God chooses to use the weaker things. God chooses to use the smaller things. God chooses to use the things that the world said, says are foolish as His strong weapons against sin and death and the demons. The scripture we're going to look at is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. Paul is writing to the Corinthians, uh, the, 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 Christ, the Christians at the church in the Greek city of Corinth, and to encourage them and challenge them in their faith. And he says this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But... God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the, to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. I, so, so what are the, the tools in God's toolbox. The things that the world says are foolish. The people that the world says are weak. The people that the world view as low or despised or even hated. Those are God's favorite things to use to accomplish His will. Those are His weapons of choice. I love the last one. Here's the power of God for you. God uses the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. In other words, God can do more with nothing than the world and the devil can do with everything. Now, why is God doing this? Doesn't make a lot of sense. Christianity uh, would be a lot more popular if God would shift tactics here. Get the kings and the presidents on board. Get all the rich people. Get all the actors and the athletes. Make Christianity cool and hip. We could really blow the doors off this thing. So why are, why are these God's tools? Why is God using people who are thought of as foolish, weak, and lowly? Well, God answers the question in the next verse. He says, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, I want to give you an illustration from the life and ministry of Jesus of this principle. And we're going to go to Palm Sunday, to Christ's triumphal entry. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, and he's coming into Jerusalem for his final week of ministry. This is the big week. This is his week where he is preparing for his suffering, for his crucifixion, and his resurrection. So Palm Sunday begins the week for which Jesus ultimately came, right? It's his heavy lifting. He's going to take the sin of the world, die in our place, and rise again. So let me uh, go to that passage here in um, 
Uh, this is uh, Luke chapter 21. It said, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. So uh, a mom donkey and a little boy donkey. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Quick map here for you. They are coming into Jerusalem from the east. They have just come from Bethany, where Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. And that was the last straw for the Pharisees. They say, well, now we got to kill him. And they say, and we got to kill Lazarus too, make him dead again, because him being around is a problem. So they've come through Bethany, now they've come through Bethphage, and then you see the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, and then he's preparing for his triumphal entry into, uh, into Jerusalem. Verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt and put uh, on. You know, when great kings ride into their cities, what do they ride on? Yeah, war horses, right? Here are some from history. Let's see if you can identify any of these. Anybody recognize this one? Take a stab. If you're wrong, I'll tell you in front of everybody. Yeah, it's not Napoleon. That's actually George Washington, believe it or not. All right, how about this one? There he is, right? There's Napoleon. Uh, and here's one from quite a long time ago. Anybody know this one? Yeah, my, you cheated, honey. We've been there. This is outside of Notre Dame in Paris. So uh, did, did Bond get that too? Way to go. Oh, <laughs> oh, by the way, I haven't introduced you. My son-in-law, Bond, Lissy's husband, arrived this morning. Let's go! So happy that you're here, uh, Bond. But here are all these great men of, of history. Oh, I forgot one more. Um, uh, so for some cultures, a horse is not impressive enough. So this is uh, King Naresuan uh, of Thailand. What's the message here? The message uh, when you come in on your war horse is the power and the greatness of man military might, human power and authority. And now think of Jesus, the King of Kings coming into his city. And what's he riding on? A donkey, but not, there's two donkeys. There's the mom donkey and the boy donkey. And he's riding on the little donkey. He didn't even pick the big one. Picks the small one. What does Jesus ride? What is this all about? See, Jesus is actually coming to wage war. This is, he's going to strike the decisive blow against sin, against death, and against the devil, and he chooses the donkey as his war horse. Why? Because God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Now, another interesting point of prophecy here is the gate by which Jesus entered the city. He came from the east, from Jericho and Bethany over the Mount of Olives. You can walk the same road today. And he entered the city near the temple at the eastern gate. There are eight gates in ancient Jerusalem. All of them are still active and open except for this one, the eastern gate. It was sealed shut with rock in 1517, 
when Muslim jihadists conquered Jerusalem under Suleiman the Magnificent. It's a great title, by the way. If you're in a history book, find a way to get the Magnificent after you. It's a sweet deal. So, but after taking the city, Suleiman, uh, it is, uh, the, the, the history records that Suleiman heard whispers from the Jews that one day a savior, a king, was going to come into Jerusalem and he would come through the eastern gate. So Suleiman said, well, I'll take care of that. And he sealed it up. And that's the way it looks today. Can't outfox me. What's amazing is the prophet Ezekiel, 600, in 600 BC, almost 2,000 years before Suleiman, predicted what he would do. God showed Ezekiel a vision of Jerusalem's future, and he wrote it down, Ezekiel 44. Then he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces east, and it was shut. He had a vision of this shut gate, and he said to me, this gate shall remain shut. It shall not be opened. No one shall enter by it, for the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered by it. Speaking of Christ's entry on Palm Sunday, and therefore it shall remain shut. We'll come back to that in just a minute. But you go on to verse 12, back on the the triumphal entry. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. He's being worshiped. He's being praised as as the Savior. They're saying, Hosanna, we're saved, we're saved, we're saved. And and here's what happens the next day. The next day he comes back in and he turns over all the tables of the money changers and people that were deceiving and stealing people's money and all the criminality that was happening in the temple. This was Jesus's how to win friends and influence people uh, entry into the city. The next thing that happens is the blind and the lame come in to the temple. Now, Old Testament law and pharisaical tradition at that point was that you could not enter the center areas of the temple if you had any kind of deformity. And in our modern sensibilities, we would say, what a horrible thing. It'd be like saying someone in a wheelchair wouldn't be allowed into church. We'd say, no, no, you can't come in because you are not uh, perfect or you are not well-formed. Only the well-formed are allowed here. To us, it sounds just horrific and barbaric, but it was a gospel message. Who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? Only he with clean hands and a pure heart. Question, the question is, who gets to go to heaven? Only the perfect person. Where does that leave you? Where does that leave me? Out. I need a Savior. I need the mercy of God to rescue me and to bring me in. So the blind and the lame come in. Scripture says that Jesus uh, heals them also. First of all, uh, Jesus' first weapon of warfare was the donkey. His next weapon of warfare, the blind and the lame. The next thing that happened is the children come in. Okay, they, they, Oh, I had a uh, picture here. I'm sorry. The next thing that happened is the children come in. And again, they're not allowed in there either. And they start singing to Jesus. And they start singing, Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna is a word which means we're saved. We're saved. It's like people on a ship or, or a, your, your a ship is lost at sea, right? And it's been days and days and days and you're on the brink of death and you see the 
rescue boat on the horizon. We're saved. We're saved. This is what the children are singing. And the scriptures say that when the Pharisees heard, well, I'll, I'll, I'll read it to you. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said, do you, they said to Jesus, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? So let's continue to look at Jesus's preferred weapons of war. Donkey, blind, lame, and now the kids. These are the folks that he's pulling together for his final week of ministry. I was... Um, sharing this particular passage in, at a conference in Malaysia. And one of my pastor friends there, Rob, he said, Rob, have you ever gone back to the Old Testament to find out why God calls forth praise from children? Because Jesus, when, he, when Jesus says, uh, um, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes you prepared praise? He's quoting something he said in the Old Testament. So I said to my friend, no, I've, I've never gone back and looked at that. He's like, well, you should. I said, I will. And let me ask you the question before I show you. If I were to ask you, why does God call forth praise from children? What's your first instinct as to why God would enjoy that or why God would do that? Hmm? Yeah, I, someone said innocence, I, I think, right? What was the other one? Yeah, yeah, childlike faith. That's, this, that's certainly my first thought. I mean, Jesus is so clear, right, that unless you have the faith of the child, right, you can't know the Father. You can't enter the kingdom of heaven. So God must love, and we know he loves, this childlike worship, this childlike trust. But that's not the answer. Jesus is quoting Psalm 8, 1, and 2. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have called for praise. And now here's the why. Because of your foes, to silence the enemy and the avenger. Can I read that to you again? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you've called forth praise because of your foes to silence the enemy and the avenger. Here's something that I can't explain to you, but something happens in the realm of spiritual war when children worship Jesus. The Bible says that the devil is a deceiver. He's a liar. He speaks for his main language is lies. And one of the ways to get him to shut up is to have the kids sing. So when singing in your home, singing at Go Lake, singing in church, this is not just like cute. I mean, it's nice, it's cute, it's fun when they sing, but according to God, he's calling forth praise because kids singing praise to Jesus is actually a weapon in spiritual battle. Why? Because God chose what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what's weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what's low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. On Palm Sunday, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Does anybody know what he's going to be riding at his second coming? Yeah, now we're to the war horse. 
Then I saw heaven open, Revelation 19.11, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Jesus promised that he is coming back. He's not going to come under the radar like he came the first time, coming back to make everything right, coming back to save those that have, who have put their faith in him, coming back to bring judgment and recompense to his enemies. Zechariah 14 says that Jesus is going to stand on the same place that he ascended after his resurrection. So the Mount of Olives. So this is the same place where Jesus entered the city on, on Palm Sunday. Uh, he's going to come back to finish what he started to, to destroy the works of the devil. The Bible says that the armies of the earth are going to gather for battle against him on the plains of Megiddo. We call that the Battle of Armageddon. And do you know how Jesus wins the Battle of Armageddon? Does anybody know what his weapon is? How he will defeat the armies of the earth? The Scripture says they will be destroyed by the breath of his mouth and the splendor of his coming. Whew. That's it. That's the Battle of Armageddon. Doesn't make for a very good movie, does it? Then the king will enter his city where he's going to reign forever and ever. And, and God's people in the Old Testament imagined this day. In Psalm 24, the, the title of that psalm, uh, The King of Glory, and they, they practiced like a worship service, just like the people on Palm Sunday had a worship service for Jesus, saying Hosanna to the Son of David. They, um, they kind of prepared, they did prepare a worship service. What will we say on that day? And it's in, in Psalm chapter 24. I'm going to go through it to show you it, and then I'm going to encourage you to practice it with me, and then we're going to pray. But this is what they said they would do. The song leader would shout, lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, which have been sealed shut, that the King of glory may come in. The question then from the worship leader, who is this King of glory? And the people would shout, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. The worship leader would then say, lift up your head, O gates, be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And he'd ask the question again, who is this King of glory? And the people would reply, the Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory. I'd like to practice. Would you stand up with me? This is not fantasy. This is not make-believe. This day is coming. I'll be the role of the worship leader. You be the role of the congregation, okay? Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Lift up your heads, O gates, be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Heavenly Father, you promise that this day is coming. You tell us that our ultimate hope is in this day, in your return, in heaven, in this new world that you're going to make for us. And in the meantime, so many of us feel weak and lowly and foolish. 
And your word says that if that's how we feel, then we're in the perfect position for you to use us to accomplish your purposes. That we're in exactly the right place to shine the light for Christ to our parents, to our siblings, to our spouse, for our children, and for our grandchildren. You say that you're going to use the weak things so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And so we just humble ourselves before you. We, we cry out to you to, uh, to save us, help us to stop trying to save ourselves. And I'm going to give a minute right now just for each one of us in, in quiet prayer to respond to the scriptures that we looked at this week, but very specifically and very particularly tonight. Um, it is possible that you are here at this Christian camp Maybe you go to a Christian church, you've got Christian people around you, but you have never repented of your sins and put your full faith and trust in Christ as your Savior. And I want to give you space and time right now to do this, as perhaps you've caught a vision of the greatness and power and majesty of Christ as King of Kings tonight, that he brought you low, and he gave you the gift tonight of repentance and faith. You can just go to the Lord right now and tell him that. Humble yourself before him. Throw yourself in his mercy. He's never turned anyone away. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Amen.